Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I am your host, Massimo Pellucci, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Julia Galef. Julia, what are we going to talk about today? Massimo, we have a very special guest with us today in the studio. Rebecca Neuberger-Goldstein is a philosopher and novelist. She did her PhD in philosophy at Princeton, and she's the author of several intellectual histories, including Betraying Spinoza, The Renegade Jew Who Gave Us Modernity, and Incompleteness, The Proof and Paradox of Kurt Gödel, as well as several novels, including most recently, 36 Arguments for the Existence of God, A Work of Fiction. She's also won an impressive slew of awards, including the MacArthur Genius Grant in 1996. And our this first year, genius. Our first genius, yes. aside from us, of course. <laughs> our first accredited genius. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this year, she's won the American Humanist Association's Humanist of the Year Award. And we also just found out she's about to be crowned this year's free thought heroine by the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Who did you rescue? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Rebecca, welcome. I can only imagine how crowded your trophy shelf must be by now. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. If you want to, if you want to unload any of those extra trophies on anyone, I've got some space <laughs> in my bedroom. <laughs> yeah, really? I, I, I'm really waiting to see what that uh, Free Thought Heroine award looks like. Or the Free Thought Heroine cape. Cape, right. <laughs> Hopefully. Special powers. So the, uh, the initial impetus, actually, for having you on the show was that our producer, Benny, had read your book, Betraying Spinoza, and just raved about it. I, I actually I haven't heard him this enthusiastic about a book in a while. And so maybe as, as a favor to Benny, we can launch right in by talking about Betraying Spinoza. Uh, sure. It's, so it's, it's a really interesting title. Do you want to explain what in what way Spinoza is being betrayed and by whom? Well, um, so many ways. Let me count the ways that I betrayed him. <laughs> uh, the first thing was I, I was approached to write a book for a series called um, Jewish Encounters, uh -huh. and it's about it's it's uh, contemporary Jewish thinkers uh, encountering past thinkers, and the editor was very keen to have me write something. Um, took me out to lunch, and um, I said, you know, I turned to man cold, and I said, listen, the only philosopher from a Jewish background that I would be interested in writing about would be Spinoza. Mm -hmm. But to write about Spinoza from a parochial uh, point of view would be a betrayal of Spinoza, the great apostle of universalism, and, um, and you know, somebody who was excommunicated from his own communi community. Uh, and, and what do you mean by back, a parochial point of view? Well, just looking at it from a sort of Jewish point of view, what does it mean? What does Spinoza mean to the Jews? Trying to turn him into a Jewish thinker? He would not have appreciated I that. I don't think so. Uh -huh. I thought that that would be, you know, a betrayal of Spinoza. Also, I, there are other ways um, that I felt that I betrayed him because I write somewhat about his personal life, or mm -hmm. even worse, as a novelist, try to imagine my way into his inner life mm -hmm. um, and. 
this is, um, you know, I think a, a double a double betrayal of of Spinoza. He was a very uh, quiet person and and didn't did, did shy quite a bit, the sort of the limelight, right? He, oh, he had friends, yes. but oh, he did. Right? He had yeah. friends, but he really was often trying to escape them. You know, he kept moving to quieter and quieter <laughs> places uh, to to escape, and he didn't. Um, uh, I don't think he thought the personal life was all that interesting or important. Uh, that to, to the extent that we're rational, we almost all share the personal identity. That's what we should be aspiring towards. And so the the contingencies of one's biography are, if anything, hindrances. One wants to get past that sort of thing to a universal Outlook. I mean, to the extent that we all view things sub specie eternitatis, right? His mm-hmm. his his phrase: "We are being rational, and uh, and it's the way we ought to be." So I, I just felt it was a betrayal. But you know, for me, it was. Uh, I mean, all books are. It was a real voyage of uh, of, of discovery. I, discovery. I felt like I did understand Spinoza better, even his philosophy better at the end of that seeing him in the context of Jewish history. Interesting. And so, one thing about his that. philosophy that yeah. apparently often gets misconstrued and misunderstood and, and, and um, uh, you can comment on this is is this idea that he didn't believe in God but he, or had a different concept of God for, certainly from his contemporaries yeah. which is part of the reason why he got into trouble. Yeah. But um, the very often people think of Spinoza uh, as equating God with nature but in fact it was a little more complicated than that, right? Oh, I am so very glad you said that. <laughs> yes, I mean this is when I speak you know, to non-philosophical audiences. I'm, it's one of the first things I always point out, you know, when he says, you know, Deus Siwe Natura, that thing which can be be conceived either as God or as nature. It's not the nature of babbling brooks or even of you know, the Big Bang. I mean, it is. It is. Uh, it's nature as a string theorist. It's the final theory of everything. <laughs> is what it is. Is really the final theory. That's of the impression everything. I got. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Far ahead, obviously, way way before anybody could talk about final Which theories is so of everything. Interesting to me because actually, some of my best, I don't know, readers turn out to be physicists um, hmm. and. And string theories in particular, the idea that the math can explain everything, that everything falls out of the, the math, out of the abstract, is very, very uh, attractive to them. And also the idea that, um, you know, that there's a theory that explains everything, even why it must be the u- unique theory. Um, that this is, you know, truly the final theory of everything is a very... It's a very appealing idea, and I, you know, I, I do believe that Spinoza had that idea. He he has such an outmoded terminology, a vocabulary, a medieval, mm-hmm. you know, substance and attributes and essences and all that. Well, he was at the threshold there between exactly. you know, medieval I and modern. What, yeah. what years did he do his? Well, he said most famous writing. He was born in you know, 1632. Okay, and thank he, you. He died when he was, I guess, 42 years old. So you know, he's right there. You know, he mm-hmm. uh, overlaps a little bit with Descartes. He is a, an older contemporary of Leibniz. They did mm-hmm. meet. Leibniz. Ripped him off terribly. Apparently, <laughs> that's right. I read that was, uh-huh. But before we get to Latinitz, actually, yeah. let's say for just one more second on, on Spinoza's yeah. God. Because, um, so Einstein famously said that yeah. he believed in Spinoza's God. Yeah. Now, in your opinion, did actually Einstein know what Spinoza's God was, was or was he, did he come up with his own interpretation? In other words, did, the, did Einstein actually equate, in fact, like most people do, Spinoza's God with nature, or was he actually more nuanced about it? Oh, 
I think he was very nuanced about it. I think he knew exactly, I mean, that this was his notion of sort of the unified field theory. This this theory that was so complete, it explains why it has to be the theory, and that somehow, you know, the... Um, the world itself falls out of this theory, you know, that, that it, it, it determines everything. That, that that's an idea that's very dear to Einstein's heart. And I think it was just so very clever of him. There was, there's actually, to, to say, well, you know, I believe in Spinoza's God because that sounds good. I mean, I, that's what I say to my family, too, you know, when they oh, press okay. me, ah. <laughs> get off my back. I believe in Spinoza's God. Of course, for a time, <laughs> being a Spinozian was actually essentially being an atheist, and that's Absolutely. why people got in trouble with that. They sh- you know, well into the Age of Enlightenment, Kant had to, de- had to defend himself against the charge of being a closet atheist, which meant, you know, a determinist, a fatalist, an immora- immorality, immor- immoralist? Immoralist, yes. Immoralist, which, yes. Which, for somebody like Kant, is, is really bizarre. Bizarre. Bizarre, bizarre must have heard. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, but there was this whole pantheismus strait in the... Um, in uh, in Kant's day, uh, where this fellow, his name was Jacobi, and he was an anti-Enlightenment figure and wanted to argue that the Enlightenment uh, led to Spinozism, that that was the logical conclusion and that is atheism. And so he was going to use this as an attack on the Enlightenment. He, so we attacked um, Moses um, uh, Mendelssohn and, and Kant. Um, and then all of these romantic figures like Goethe and Heine came out of the woodwork and declared themselves Spinozists, that they were Spinozists. Uh, and they, they kind of transformed Spinoza. And I think part of the misunderstanding of Spinoza that, you know, nature and worshipping nature and, you know... Uh, came out of the romantics. The ah. Romantics. That's huh. the German romantics kind of twisted that's one more thing that I have to check against the romantics, I suppose. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one of the interesting and particularly original parts of your book is the way you show how Spinoza's personal life can actually be detected in his philosophy. Could you talk a little about that? Hmm. You know, there's a lot of um, imaginative reconstruction going on there. Um, now, for example, I didn't get into this, but my students love to or theorize that Spinoza must have had a very sad sexual history because he has just the saddest things, you know, the most depressing things to say about romantic love. It will always end in hatred. Um, it will end in jealousy, and so my students, you know, are always thinking, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, some woman did him yeah. wrong, yeah, right. <laughs> but I don't think that that was really the great um, tragedy in his life. I, I actually think that he, he was raised in a very unique community. Um, they were all refugees from the Portuguese, the Spanish Portuguese Inquisition. They had all been forced to convert to Catholicism. Judaism was um, outlawed on the Iberian Peninsula um, in the 15th century. And there were people who practiced Judaism in secret, especially in Portugal. And that's where his community, that's where his family came from. And then they went to Amsterdam, and they re-embraced Judaism. Many of them were very disappointed in what Judaism really was, uh, because there was this, all this rabbinical accretion. Uh, they thought it was just the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
and it was a very fraught community in which sort of the question of what is a Jew and what counts as a Jew and um, was was constantly erupting into controversies. And, and Spinoza grew up with this in the midst of this fraught question about, you know, what is it to be Jewish? And I think he used a kind of Cartesian rationalism to hmm. argue that this question doesn't really matter. He, it's such a, it's such a, um, in the 17th century, he's, he's really the first person who doesn't identify himself religiously according to any mm-hmm. religious Gee, you community. wonder why he was kicked out from his community. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think, you know, that, that um, issue was so fraught in his community, and he was thinking his way past it in such a radical way but, you know, I still think he's a very radical figure today. But that wasn't the only, uh, by far, not not, not the only uh, controversial position that Spinoza took, right? For, for instance, he did not believe in free will. Um, and his positions on ethic also was very unorthodox. I mean, he, he really thought basically that ethics is a human thing and it's it's a matter of relative uh, good and evil in, as as, in, as uh, universal concepts don't exist. It's all about yeah. human yeah. Uh, human experience, right? Yeah. That yeah. right there must have been a very unpopular and unusual position at the uh, time yeah, as well. Yeah, of course he, I don't know how much of that got out. Um, he was excommunicated at the age of 24. Um, we're not even exactly sure why. Um, and he didn't publish the ethics until, um, well, it wasn't published until after his death. His friends That's because of a, these mm. violent reactions to his first book. Exactly. Right? Yeah. He was trying to make, you know, I think one of, the, one of his aims in writing the uh, theological political treatise was to try to make it safe to publish the ethics, and the reaction mm. was so violent. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, you know, he saw that it wasn't possible. So I don't know. Um, how much was actually known about, um, for example, the view of that he, uh, um, his views, views about ethics and that he really tries to lay it down on an empirical basis, uh, that he really does think, you know, that uh, we can discover what it is that makes human life flourish. Um, and that's what we all want. Each, I mean, that, that constitutes a, a person's identity, to try to persist in their being and to flourish. That's, a, you know, conitas. That's the, the concept of conitas. And that, um, and whatever helps us to, to, to flourish is, is good. Uh, it turns out that the same sort of things help us to flourish, reason foremost. Reason would help us to flourish. That reminds me quite a bit of the thinking about ethics of another philosopher that we talked about recently on the podcast, which is David Hume. Yes. Uh, who, of course, came after. Um, but it seems like, so is there a, a direct influence there? Uh, or is it Hume arrived at his positions uh, in a sort of a, by, by another way, by some kind of... I think certainly, I think by, by another way. Um, and, it's, and I think, in fact, that Spinoza and Hume are the most perfect philosophers of their extremely different types. Um, that, you know, with Spinoza, there has to be a deep necessity underlying everything. And, and Hume, of course, rejects that. Right. Uh, you know, it's, it's, and they both follow... Um, their their intuitions about this about necessity or and contingency to the extreme conclusions you know that they're and that they meet about ethics is just beautiful isn't it it's beautiful and, and I mean interestingly of course the canonically Hume is thought as of, of as an empiricist and, and Spinoza on the other hand as a rationalist so yes. they are from a philosophical perspective they are as far as you can possibly be right so far and metaphysically you know the sense of you know 
Is this the only possible world? Spinoza says yes, and Hume certainly says no. Um, and yet, when it comes to ethics, there's 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 such agreement, hmm. which proves that that view must be true. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's certainly an argument. <laughs> I, I'm still a little bit confused about his beliefs about God. So I've I've heard people say similar kinds of things about God before. That well, I I believe in God, but to me, God is the entirety of everything, or to me, God is the unknown, or to me, God is, you know, the world, uh, nature. And it always seemed to me like they weren't actually making a claim. They were just deciding to apply the word God to something that we already know exists. And so is that, is that what Spinoza is doing? Is, is he just sort of redefining the word God, or is he actually making an empirical claim, or what? Yeah, I mean, you know, there is the claim that... He, God, he says, is not transcendent. God is imminent within the world. So he's there is some rationale for using his view of what the world is, which is very mm-hmm. different from our usual view of what the world is, to, to think of that as God, as God-like. It is the thing that provides its own explanation, um, that to, un- to understand it is to know why it must Exists. So it is the, the causa sui, the, the, the thing that explains itself, that causes itself. Um, it is something that um, can lift the contemplation of it. We, can, we can't understand it entirely because we're finite and it's infinite. Uh, the explanation is infinite. Um, but um, the contemplation of it lifts us out of our puny, petty point of view um, and puts us in a state of worship, uh, a kind of transcendent state, and so it's a it's an object of awe, and 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 it transforms one to contemplate its being. Uh, it transforms your life. It pulls you out of your own life in a you know in a in a, in a, in a, in a uh, I don't know in an enlarging way. Mm-hmm. And so there is this kind of set, there is something divine and transcendent about this contemplation. So it's not a complete misnomer, I think. So um, when when I uh, was rereading my notes about Spinoza, um, I had the same thought that that you mentioned earlier about oh this sounds a lot like sort of metaphorically speaking certainly sounds a lot like string theory or even multiverse theory. Yeah. And then I found this, this thing in, in, in my mind saying something about um, the world, our universe, our, our world has certain attributes according to Spinoza, particularly thought and extension. And his idea was that God, those are two of God's attributes, yes. but that God has infinitely many other attributes that, are not, that do not belong to this world. That idea brought to mind, okay, well, so I can think of that as this universe has a particular set of laws, for instance, and things work in a certain particular way. But in other universes, part of the multiverse, things work in a completely different way. There are different attributes, the different laws. Yeah. Uh, now, I, you know, one cannot say that that is what Spinoza meant, but that does—that is a coherent interpretation, I think. I think so too. I think so too. I, I think actually the multiverse would go down well with Spinoza. You <laughs> <He> would <laughs> like the multiverse. I think he would be on board with it. Um, I mean, another way, another thing that he might have had in mind is that these two attributes um, uh, are—it's it, it, a kind of—it's mm, the one contingent aspect of his system, that there are two. I mean, just right. this brute number, two, And that that might be a measure more of our own finitude, that we can only conceive of um, 
of these two, and that both of these attributes, extension and um, and thinking, carve up the world in different ways. It's exactly the same world, um, but the laws we get out of extension, which is physics, and the laws we get out of thought, which is psychology, carve up exactly the same world, um, but in, in two different ways, uh, and we'll never be able to get... He's, he's kind of a dual aspect theorist. Yes, that's, yes. That's exactly. It's... Uh, it's um, it's uh, monism, but without reductionism, because we'll never be able to f- get, have one system absorb the other system. These are completely, you know, complementary systems describing exactly the same thing, but carving it up in different ways. And when he says that God has infinite attributes, he may be saying, you know, and there are an infinite no- a number of other ways we could carve up this universe, different, other, you know, different sciences that we um, we have no conception of, so that the two is simply a measure of our own finitude, which is a mind-boggling idea. I wanted to ask you something about your sort of dual approach, I guess, to these topics as both a philosopher and a novelist. One of the things about Spinoza, you mentioned earlier that he had an influence on, say, Goethe and some of the Romantics. He also had an influence on George Eliot, uh, who apparently translated the, the ethics. Yes. And, and on one of my favorite writers, uh, Jorge Luis Borges. Yes. So that brings up the whole relationship between philosophy, I guess, and fiction. Yes. Um, yes. And you know, literature. You are way into that. So, but, and it's the first time, I think, that I meet somebody who's actually that much into, you know, struggled that much the two, the two worlds. So yes. would you mind to comment about that kind yes. of experience? I, just, I, I, I actually just finished um, writing a chapter for the Oxford Handbook on Spinoza, um, edited by Michael De La Roca, on literary Spinoza, on all of the uses of Spinoza. And, um, you know, and and that's how I found out about the romantic usurpation (laughs) (laughs) of Spinoza. But, um, oh, yes, so this, this thing. Look, I set out to be a philosopher, and my first love was philosophy of math and philosophy of physics. And I loved novels. I loved, but I, it was a kind of a shameful love. You know, I was not, I didn't think it was important novels. And I just loved them. I, I mean, it was, it was almost a physical need to read them, mm-hmm. especially, you know, novels of ideas. But I, I didn't know what to do about it until I wrote I just happened to write a novel. I mean, it was, it just simply... <laughs> it just happened, happened right? Was, look what I wrote today. <laughs> and it was the summer. I was a young assistant professor of philosophy, and I finished my little journal article, which I was so bored with, I didn't even proofread it. And then I had simply been handed this novel. I had been handed a first line um, and I knew it wasn't my voice. I knew it was. I knew either I was going crazy, <laughs> or it was a novel, and that. Um, and I wrote it. You know, I, I wrote you're, it. You are sending a whole bunch of people with writer's block in the audience right now into conniptions. I'm just going <laughs> to say. Um, so and, this is how it works. Right? So this is, you know, and I you just of, wait and, and wait for a voice to hand it to you. Well, it never happened again. <laughs> I can tell you that I've written. You know, quite a few novels since, and, short, and a lot of short stories, and that it never happened again. The first one was uh, the mind body problem, mind body, yeah. mm-hmm. and you know, <laughs> I had done work on the mind body problem. Um, my dissertation was on, um, well, I guess what we would now call the hard problem of consciousness. Only it was pre Chalmers, and we didn't mm-hmm. need to call it that. And um, 
I had worked with Thomas Nagel at at Princeton, and um, you know, it was it was kind, and it was sort of funny to say to call a novel the mind body problem. Everything about it struck me as funny, but also serious. Um, and I struggle with it still. Uh, this this thing of um, being a novelist and putting a lot of philosophy into my novels, and I think. I don't know. I, I somehow learned something about philosophy by doing that. I hope my the readers The novel do. itself was funny and serious at the same time. I mean, the, yeah. some of the things that were happening to the main characters were... Yeah. I mean, and then, you know, there's this thing. I didn't even know that it happened, but she has a mattering map. She, the um, protagonist, Renee Foyer, is a woman who, you know, in some sense has every gift. She's very pretty and she's very smart and, you know, she's so miserable, you know. Mm. And um, I was trying to figure, and my editor said, why is she so miserable? And I thought, well, she does. She feels like she doesn't matter. And I was trying to sort of conceptualize this. Why does she feel that she doesn't matter? And I came up with this idea of the mattering map. Well, then I was talking at Berkeley, and somebody who was in psychology said, do you know that this notion of the mattering map is now a theoretical construct in <laughs> psychology? And sometimes you get credit for it, but you usually don't. But it was in the context of a novel trying to understand this character that I came up with something that maybe is useful. Um, and that happens. It happens to and me. In, in the novel, you touch on all of the major aspects of the debate about mind-body, uh, right? The, the different theories, as you were, you were saying, you were mentioning Nagel earlier. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And my protagonist is, is pretty... Um, is pretty obsessed with that problem, and then she's she's married to this mathematical geniuses. This mathematical genius. I, I made it plural because I have so many mathematical geniuses in my novels. I don't know why they uh, they keep popping up. The last one is as a mathematical genius too, but um, she's married to a dualist. Um, Maybe right. that's why you made it plural. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. There's two of them. Yeah, exactly. It is it is a refreshing integration of ideas with. Fiction, because I've I've in the past been quite drawn to things that were built as novels about ideas or novels about philosophy, and they often tend to be this either they're sort of very vague and fuzzy, or they tend to be this sort of like philosophy textbook sandwiched into mm, stories. Yes, like there was yes. a, a very popular book called um, Sophie's, Sophie's World, World. Yes, I which, knew you were going to say right? that. Yeah. And, and it basically yes. just you know there's this story in every chapter. They take a break to talk about the history of philosophy, and right. it's really barely barely an integration. Yes. So it's, I think so it's very I have hard this to do. Theory. And I, I've, I finally, I'm, I, um, one of my great loves is, is Plato. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's Spinoza, Plato, and Hume. You know, these are my great. That's and an Plato, interesting three. Yeah, but yeah. anyway, but, go ahead. <laughs> then, you know, in Plato, he banished the, the, the poets from his utopia. Yep. Uh-huh. And this bugs me, and mm-hmm. it's always bugged me. And I have constantly, I constantly hear Plato in my head. I am constantly trying to come up with a defense um, for what I do. Mm. And... I've come up, my latest theory is that, um, and uh, I don't, you know, it's, 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 it's something that gives me a little bit of trouble, but I th- actually think it's true. I think that these philosophical questions are um, uh, outlining the limits of our understanding. These are questions that we are just smart enough to ask and not, re- not to answer, and that our, our, 
our character, our personality, our orientation, our emotional self comes into play in our intuitions about these things. And, you know, uh, so do we believe that the world is, an, is necessary or is, this is the only possible universe or do we think it's all contingent? Um, and uh, do we think that, you know, everything is... What, what, what's our basic gut intuition about free will? Are we willing to warp all our ideas just so that we can proclaim ourselves free? Um, I often think that's the case with with Kant, I mean, mm-hmm. that he just right. had to have he that. He has to have it. I That's has right. to have it, even if it leads to inconsistency. Mm-hmm. Um, or are we, you know, willing to go with Spinoza and say, no, we're not free. You know, this is an illusion. That these gut intuitions help help to shape um, our, our, our worldview and our philosophical opinions because we're floating out there. We can't really answer these things. And so, and that's what I think I'm really trying to do in my novels is show mm-hmm. how character plays into our philosophical uh, opinions and, and intuitions. Interesting. Do you and of think course, that, I'm sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, that, you know, Plato, and of course, you know, he's one to talk. I mean, his entire canon essentially is, is fictional dialogues. Exactly. <laughs> so. Exactly. I mean, the liberties that man takes with Socrates, a real character, right? <laughs> Um, yeah, and he writes so beautifully. It, absolutely. And uses every trick of the trade. I still know. think that the Euthyphro is one of the best things ever written in the Western canon, frankly. The Euthyphro yeah. is superb. Superb, The right. Euthyphro and that argument, I mean, that is the argument, the argument yep. for those who try to say that we need theology to ground religion. That is just give them the Euthyphro. That's right. right. Uh, so I had wanted to ask about your discussion of how our intuitions and our emotions shape our philosophical views, because this yeah. is something I've talked to a lot of philosophers about, and I've, I've generally been surprised at how much explicit weight philosophers are willing to give to intuitions and in making their arguments. And so I wanted to find out whether you thought that these very personal intuitions and emotions actually should carry as much weight as they do in philosophy, or whether they're things to struggle against and try to try to overcome. Well, I think that that's why it's so wonderful that philosophy is such a gregarious profession, that we get together and we talk and we have... And argue. And argue. <laughs> um, I mean, it, it, it is... Uh, I think that that's very important because it's good to see um, that the intuitions that are fundamental to yourself mm-hmm. um, need not be fundamental, you know, to other philosophers who you... You, you respect, I mean, the notion yeah. of objectivity. I mean, one of the, just the most basic intuition. Do you think there's objective truth out there or don't you? You know, do you think that we shape everything? It all has to be contextualized. Or do you think there, you know, the truth is, you know, is out there, whether it's moral or mathematical or aesthetic or physics. Um, such different intuitions of good thinkers, mm-hmm. um, good philosophers uh, that, that are um, in opposition over something as fundamental as, as the notion of, of, of as, uh, as objectivity. I mean, the hope was, I mean, Plato, for example, thought, look, if you subject yourself to reason, we're all, and Spinoza believes this too, mm-hmm. right. that we're all going to end up with the same point of view because reason will determine the answer, but it doesn't. We're, we're not not know, uniquely. That's not for sure. Uniquely. I think what reason, what a, a more sort of sort of put it uh, reasonable way to, to to understand it is that reason 
uh, may agree, may let people to agree to eliminate certain certain answers because they exactly. definitely don't work. Exactly. But it doesn't determine a unique answer. But you know, yeah. Julie and I have often these discussions about philosophy <laughs> and science. You know, uh, I have a mixed background because I used to be a scientist until literally two or three years ago. Yes, and it's and, physics, right? Uh, no, biology. Biology. Uh-huh. And um, and so we have these discussions. One of the things that I think it's interesting is, first of all, I think of philosophers using intuition. Uh, intuitions as a starting point, and then you have to subject it to that kind of you know rigorous crosstalk and and sort of uh, argumentation you're talking about. But in fact, there is also a Germanic under uh, appreciation of the role of intuition in science. Uh, just today, I was teaching a class at uh, at CUNY on um, uh, you know a honors class on uh, on um, philosophy of science, basically, and we were talking about um, the fact that the word scientist itself. Uh, was actually uh, introduced by William Wheel uh, in the 19th century in analogy with artists. And the reason for that was because there is part of what scientists do, what philosophers of science call the, the context of justification, that does deal with very specific methods, very specific, you know, logical, uh, uh, empirically based uh, approach to things. But then there is the context of discovery. Right. You know, this how do you come cool. up with ideas? Exactly. Well, that's all intuitions. Yeah. yeah. And we don't yeah. really have a general theory of intuitions. We don't have a general theory of how people come up with ideas. They yeah. just do. Like yeah. your voice. There was a <laughs> yes. About yeah. About. yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I think that was Hans Reichenbach who... Um, Terminology that was his uh, distinction made with context of discovery and context of justification. But the thing is, with in, in science, you know, if you have this intuition, you have to somehow tie it down to something empirical, empirical. Right. something. You know, even the string theorists they will eventually right. tie it down, you know, to something empirical, and then you see how it pans out. Um, whether the intuition is is is, is a good or, or you know is good or not, and we've done away with a lot of intuitions, um, right. vitalism, all these things you know that that were fundamental um, in um, in science. But in philosophy, is this peculiar set of questions that we can't tie down mm-hmm. um, to to anything empirical? I mean, we have, but then it becomes science. Right. Right. And no one in science says X is true because they have an intuition that it's true, but yeah. they say that in philosophy. Yeah, exactly. And, but what you know, where else do you do you start? And so, I know, I understand. It's know, really but hard. But you work it out. You tweak out the implications. I mean, and the other wonderful thing that you can do, and your fellow philosophers will do for you, will show inconsistencies. Right. In your that's point what, of view. that's, that's sure. what I meant when I referred to logic cleans up stuff that right. doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Exactly. Right. Yeah, that's Speaking true. of logic, you've written about Kurt Gödel. Yeah. As well. Nice. So, which is <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was lovely. <laughs> and you said you had an interest of origin, originally in philosophy and mathematics. Yes. So yeah, I guess that's that's part of it. So all right, tell us the basics about Godel because this is Godel's <laughs> incompleteness theorem is another one of those things uh, are because there are two of them, yes. but especially the first one, which is the the one that most people often refer to. Um, that's also something that a lot of people misunderstand, and and then on the other hand, it's very interesting for for our readers because, as you know, it's been misused in all sorts of ways, including uh, ironically by postmodernists to argue yes. that there is no such thing as objective knowledge, which would have mm-hmm. horrified Gödel, uh, uh, from what I understand. So absolutely please. right. Uh, yes, exactly. So, and I think that is probably what got me um, to write about it because mm. when you hang out with you know because I'm hanging out with scientists, but I'm also hanging out with writers and humanists and. Oh my lord, the misuse of Goodall. Um And I am, you know, when it comes to intuitions, one of my deep core intuitions is in objective truth, mm-hmm. um, and especially in mathematics. And so. And did Gödel feel the same way? Oh, yes. So, and this way, I mean, talk about intuitions. He, he was such a committed Platonist. I think that this was 
Right. The most ro- this was the romance of his life. He became a committed Platonist when he was an undergraduate um, in, in in college, um, and f- and that's when he he I think he first was going to major in physics, and then he took this history of philosophy course with a uh, professor Gumpertz, and um, he became a, a a Platonist, and he wanted to prove he wanted a mathematical proof that would prove the truth of, of Platonism. So he wanted mm. a mathematical <laughs> proof for a metamathematical Proposition. position. Yeah. You know, mm. so he wanted to do, I mean, so audacious. And I, I believe he, he came up with this plan when he was an undergraduate. At <sighs> first he was in number theory, um, and then he somehow, who knows how, because he was so secretive, switched to logic. Um, somehow saw the potential for transforming logic into a vehicle of trying to prove a metamathematical point of view mathematically. You know, and he does, you know, the, the two languages that are there, you know, those propositions, it's, a, it's just the most amazing, beautiful proof uh, because every proposition, every arithmetical proposition has two meanings uh, in, in the proof, the straightforward arithmetical one and something metamathematical. It can talk about its own provability within the system. Uh, so there is a kind of merging of mathematics and metamathematics. You know, he thought that he did prove Platonism because he proves that um, he pulls apart the notion of provability and truth, that there are in every system of mathematics, uh, every consistent system of mathematics rich enough to express arithmetic there is a proposition which is true but unprovable. And we can see that it's true, but it's not provable. So he's so, pulling apart these two notions of truth and provability. I'm so glad I have you here because it's always been so difficult for me to understand what true but not provable means because I always... How, how can you, you know something, that is something is true is if you haven't proved it? Right. So yes, can you? yes. Well, this very amazing proposition that we call now the Gödel proposition mm-hmm. that he comes up with... It has this arithmetical meaning, but it's also saying about itself that it can't be proved in the system, um, in this complete system. And the way that we see that that is true is that if that proposition could be proved in the system, it would lead to a contradiction. So we it's a proof know, by contradiction, right. So we know that this proposition is true, that is, that it can't possibly be proved true, because if it could be proved true, it would lead to a contradiction. But it still it seems like a bit of a smart-ass approach to me. It's an <laughs> incredible <is>. smart-ass approach, <laughs> it exactly. But it, it works because it's self-referential, right? Exactly, the, the, yes, it is self-referential, so would, yes. would we have this, this problem uh, if we just sort of... I don't know, compartmentalize all the self-referential statements, put them in a box and said, let's just, let's just ignore these and, and deal with you know, math and logic without them. Well, what's so wonderful is that he takes this horrible affront to our intellect paradoxes. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're terrible. You know, the mind just boggles at them. And he transforms it. He uses it. He makes use of it. He mm. turns it into a proof to show that there is an, in every consistent system um, rich enough to express arithmetic, there will be a, a proposition which is true. And we can actually see, not using the instruments of formal proof within that system, but sort of going outside the system and understanding what the proposition is saying, we can see that proposition is true, but we can't prove it within the system. Mm-hmm. And the other thing, the second 
um, theorem says that one of the things we can't prove within a system is the consistency of that system itself. So Which is did, also upsetting. Did this result have repercussions in, in philosophy? Oh, yes. In, well, it basically undermined it. Yes. Yeah. Uh, that was a big time in logic oh, and philosophy gosh. and mathematics, right? So, yeah. so the, the, you had uh, Bertrand Russell and, and Whitehead well, the writing big, the Principia yeah. Mathematica, right? Right. And, well, he used their system because we knew that that was consistent. So that mm-hmm. was the system that he uses for his language. But the person he really torpedoed was... David Hilbert, Hilbert yeah. uh, who was um, who was the preeminent mathematician of the generation before, and wanted to formalize all of mathematics because mm-hmm. of the paradoxes, um, and said, you know, so there was this program to formalize everything and to show um, that all, all truths could be captured in formal systems, and that's exactly what Gödel showed couldn't be done. Mm. Um, what about outside of logic and philosophy of math? Did it have any impact on, on, say, epistemology? What philosophers thought could be known? Yes, I think so. But there's here's but the, here's the so. sad thing. That's where that, the problem yeah, comes in, right? Exactly. Because then that's where the postmodernists would say, "Oh, well, that's why I'm wondering can, but it's yeah. not how much it influenced and how much it should have influenced." Right. Exactly. Those are d- different even, things. Yeah. Even within philosophy itself, there was, you know, there was disagreement about the interpretation of what it really meant. And that's the sort of interesting thing. Gödel wanted to end discussion. He wanted to use the precision <laughs> and the rigor of mathematics to prove the metamathematical position that he loved. I mean, he mm-hmm. truly loved it. And um, and he didn't do that. You can't do that because there's always a way of going at these um, philosophical opinions uh, that, that you can argue about. Wittgenstein, for example, um, didn't he wasn't a Platonist? He knew of of Gödel's um, proof. He talks about it in Foundations of Mathematics a little bit. Now, uh, uh, this is going to be on a lighter side, but uh, I want to, some, to for a minute talk about the story about Gödel and the U.S. Constitution oh, because yes. I found I find that that is an extremely yes. amusing and, and probably give you some insight actually into the man's character. Right? So you want you want to tell the story? Yes. So he took it very seriously. So Gödel, he came here, um, you know, from from Austria during the Nazi period, um, and. He was not, by the way, Jewish. He was often he was often, he was often mistaken for, for <laughs> Jew. He looked kind of Jewish. Well, he, he was out. associated. One of the reasons he got in trouble yes. with the Nazis because he was of his association with the Vienna Circle. Yes, and right. that was you know there were and, and Han, who was mm. his uh, his dissertation advisor, was Jewish. I mean, you know, he was he hung out with a lot of Jews, but he was not Jewish. Um, but he did um, he did actually get beaten up um, by some brown shirts. They knocked off his glasses and his. Wife, Adele, fought them off with her umbrella. <gasps> You're kidding. <laughs> yes. the most adorable thing adorable. I've ever heard. <laughs> he came to the United States. Might be States. the most adorable story involving Nazis I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> yes, usually the word adorable and Nazi story don't go together very well. <laughs> it's a low bar, but... <laughs> <laughs> Definitely adorable. <laughs> um, so, you know, he, they, finally they came to Princeton to um, the Institute of Advanced Study. Um, Einstein was already... There, they, be, they I, became good friends. With a, their, right? a legendary friendship. Mm-hmm. When I was writing the book, I interviewed people, and I got them just in time because they're all, they all died soon afterwards. Oh, wow. um, um. Who knew about their friendship? And one mathematician said to me, "They wouldn't. They didn't want to talk to anybody else. They would only talk to each other." So mm. Einstein was quite old, and Gödel was young. Very different personalities, but they really. And they both believe very strongly in objective truth. I think yep, this, yep, that's right. and were upset about the misunderstandings of their own 
famous results. Although, open parenthesis, I want to go back to the U.S. Constitution stuff. Okay, yes, yes, but, yes. But yes, open yes. parenthesis, uh, didn't Godel give as a present to Einstein on his 70th birthday a, a, a a paper that actually caused Einstein to have troubles about his own theories? Well, yeah. Oh. I mean, he said that it, it, it works out that one of Some the models... Some kind of present, by the way. Yes. One <laughs> of the models for general relativity is cyclical time. Right. And Einstein said he was aware of that, He, but he didn't like it. Which would make time travel possible. Exactly. Right? But he, didn't, you know, he, he didn't like it. He didn't like it, exactly. <laughs> and he didn't like it... He didn't like to see it worked out so rigorously. Yeah, right. I mean, he was sort of in the back of his mind. Oh, this might be possible. I don't I like don't it. Hear about it. Okay, back but to the US back, Constitution. So, okay, so Einstein was already a citizen. Gödel studied for his citizenship. He took it very seriously. Gödel took everything very seriously, mm-hmm. and he was very upset because he seemed to have discovered a problem with the Constitution. He saw a way in which um, democracy could um, um, collapse into into totalitarianism. Um, and he, a constitutional way in which that could happen. A constitutional way in which that could happen. And so he, uh, he, he, he wanted to talk to people about it, and he was very obsessed about it. And then um, he, he got in. So Einstein was taking him to his meeting with the judge who was going to test him and, and and give him citizenship. And he got into the car and he and oh and Einstein was the delegated distractor. He wasn't not supposed to let Gödel think about this constitution <laughs> problem. So he kept talking and and then they um they they arrived before the the um judge who had been the judge the same judge for Einstein so he knew him and was very you know very friendly. And then the judge opened up by saying, "You come from you come from uh, Germany." He said, "No, on the contrary, I come from Austria." He said, "Well, in any case, um, your country is now um, under totalitarianism. This could never happen in the United States. Just the worst thing that he could oh, possibly no. say." And Gödel said, "On the contrary." Oh, no. And then a quick look between Einstein and the judge, and the judge said, "Oh, I don't think we need to go into this right now." <laughs> So unfortunately, we don't know what. Oh, we don't get all oh, that. So he never wrote down might. that thing. Well, huh? he might have. You know, he used this special um, a shorthand that he learned as a high school student. Um, is this uh, Gobbles Hubber? I can't remember the name of it, but it's a shorthand. And so there's somebody who's been translating all of these notebooks. Um, from the shorthand, this German. It's not bad enough that it's in German, but yeah. it's in the shorthand. And so they haven't gotten around to the notebooks. I mean, of course, the first oh, there's priority... there's still more material that we haven't read from still, him. Interesting. The, the first priority is the logic, you know, the math, right. and not the well, political... Well, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> my first priority would actually be that one, but whatever. Yeah. That's just my... Now, Godel, however, also had a much darker side, right? I mean, he actually basically starved himself to he death did. at the end because he, he couldn't be fed by his wife, right? That's, yeah, she was the in the hospital. She used to, she was, uh, used to feed his, um, taste his food. And she was in the hospital. Because he was paranoid was he, about He was poisoned. paranoid. Mm-hmm. And he had been paranoid. Um, you know, even he even had uh, episodes of paranoia back in Austria when mm-hmm. he was uh, a young man. And But interestingly enough, Leibniz features in this. Oh. So Einstein, we said, you know, Einstein loved Spinoza. And Gödel 
loved Leibniz. They were both rationalists, Mm -hmm. uh, these two men who Mm -hmm. would walk back and forth from the Institute every day. And um, uh, he, he, so he believed very strongly in a principle of sufficient reason, uh, Gödel. And um, he believed that everything that happened was necessary and that there was always an explanation and that Interestingly, his somehow his paranoia and his and his metaphysics merged together oh. in some very odd way. It's a combustible way. combination. It's a very combustible. And I have to when I was teaching the rationalists, the seventeenth-century rationalists, I would sometimes have students. This was at Columbia, uh-huh. who who were also verging on sort of paranoid and the, the notion of like an explanation behind everything is ah. very appealing I can I can see the sort of conceptual uh, connection between yes between yeah. those two yeah. I, I'm so glad yeah. I abandoned that the principles of the yeah. a number of years ago <laughs> very healthy it's <laughs> yes. of mental health all right we, we are now over time um but uh, thank you so much for uh, for all of those Oh, uh, fascinating discussions of, of both Spinoza and Gödel. My and, pleasure. And your own process. Um, <laughs> and you. so we'll wrap up the section and move on now to the Rationally Speaking Picks. Welcome back. Every episode, we pick a suggestion for our listeners that has tickled our rational fancy. This time, we ask our guest, Rebecca Neuberger-Goldstein, for her suggestion. Okay, I think I might be accused of nepotism here. But, <laughs> oh, go ahead. But go ahead. Well, Steven Pinker, uh, yes. who we, we have heard of him, yes, mm-hmm. is about to publish uh, in October a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. Mm. which is really shocking. Mm. <laughs> it is um, it is it is a long book and it looks at uh, measures of violence of every sort wars, um, uh, duration of wars, intensity, number, um, how many big powers uh, get involved in wars, um, homicide, uh, human Over what, rights. What time frame? Is starting this? with the hunter gatherers. Really? And we have data on that. <laughs> the whole well, shebang. <laughs> really? The whole shebang. Well, you know, we we have. Uh, there are still hunter gatherer communities. Oh, it turns out, um, Hobbes was right. Rousseau was wrong. The most dangerous place to live is in. A hunter-gatherer society. <laughs> yeah, in a state of nature, yes. Oh, uh, Rousseau um, is romantic, so... Yes. <laughs> well, you know, funny thing, we covered Rousseau in the same episode we covered Hume, and boy, did I have already bad reason, bad, bad, a bad argument with, with Rousseau, and I only got vindicated by, by this Exactly, stuff. <laughs> exactly. But in... And it, it's 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 shot. We we tend to think that we are living, or that we've been through in the 20th century, the most violent period in history, and it, that's, that's actually completely... False. Now he's a big supporter of you know human nature. It's not human nature that's changing, mm-hmm. um, but we we learn. Um, mm-hmm. And it turns out one of the most important um, instruments for making us less violent is reason. The Enlightenment had a huge effect on homicide rates. Really? Um, as as you watch the Enlightenment spreading from from 
Amsterdam to, to London, of course, uh, literacy rates are going up, and that helps a lot too. But you actually can plot the, you know, they, they have plotted the homicide rates and they drop. But we are living actually in the least violent time in human history. It could all be reversed. We have terrible weapons. Hopefully uh, it's not reversed before the book comes out. That would be awkward. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's coming out soon. It's interesting, uh, the, the way you just put it, uh, again, reminded me of something that we've uh, uh, talked about pretty recently about Hume. So I read, I read recently a, a paper on uh, Hume's conception of human nature. And it turns out that Hume had an interesting position Big surprise there. He, he often had interesting <laughs> positions. But he was involved in this debate um, in his time when, where some people were saying, no, look, human nature is you know, horrible. We, we, we're horrible creatures. We're selfish and all that. The other side was saying, no, we're very social. We're very cooperative and so on. But both sides assumed that human nature was unchangeable. Yeah. Hume's position was much more nuanced and I think much more modern. Which is, and he basically said, yes, there are some fundamental things about human nature. We studied it in a certain way. But in fact, society, culture, and therefore also reason, changes things. Uh, and it alters them sometimes in you know, long-lasting uh, terms. And yes. it sounds like that's... Yes, that's- this is exactly right. I mean, culture also you know, can, can have a, a, a terrible effect. I mean, it right. turns out the most dangerous thing, and this is a book with I mean, just an incredible amount of empirical data, graphs, and I called it his graphic argument. Because <laughs> I think there are 100 graphs. Um, but um, the most dangerous thing for our species is ideology. You know, whether mm-hmm. it is yeah. religious ideology or secular ideology, right. it kills. And um, and that is, uh, I don't know. That's and that's a topic. That's okay. a topic. That's, your pick. <laughs> that's a my pick. Right. And we will make sure to have a link to that. I suppose for pre-ordering now and and soon enough for ordering oh, the book uh, underneath the the link to this episode on the Rationally Speaking podcast website. And we now are, are well out of time, I'm afraid. Um, this has been such a pleasure. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. And this concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollack and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening. <laughs>